You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 143, and I am Nathan Gilmore. I'm an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined on the line today by David Grubbs coming at you from Kansas and Central Christian College. David, how are you doing this morning? Uh, better. I hope I sound Good, good. You sound frog. better. You sound better. <laughs> uh, listeners, if you heard our last episode, you heard a very froggy David Grubbs. Uh, he seems to have emerged from his amphibiousness. Um, <laughs> coming to us as well from the Great White North in Minnesota, from Crown College, it's Dr. Michael Farmer. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm all right. You know, it's only white in the winter. Well, you know, in my mind, it's always cooler than Georgia. Which I'm is not sure it is. It's, it's supposed to get for like 88 today. Yeah, it's been 100 for about a week and a half in Georgia. Ooh, man, I don't miss the South. <laughs> And listeners, I am not built for the South. I am a polar bear, uh, as I prove by, you know, my inability to handle the humidity down here every year. And, and your and your daily intake of hundreds of raw fish. Well, that too. Yeah, of course. Exactly. <laughs> well, listeners, today I wanted to take on a philosophical topic, so that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to talk about the proofs of God as articulated in the Summa Theologica of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, but before we get there, um, most folks, David, read a version of the five proofs based in large part on part one, section two of the Summa Theologia. But -hmm. I know full well they don't arise from nowhere. So hit a few of the high points of the quest to think about God's existence in a logically coherent, rationally sustainable manner, and finish up, if you would, on the doorstep of the Summa. Sure. Um, the first, uh, the first place that that I went, I tried to think: is there anything in uh, Hebrew Bible that that points in this direction? And astonishingly, with the exception of, you know, Psalm thirteen, the fool said in his heart, "There is no God." Um, Hebrew Bible is mostly not concerned with demonstrating that a God exists, but which sort? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how uh, many? Exactly. And Psalm 13, frankly, e- even that one, the fool who says in his heart there is no God, it doesn't then go on and talk about, and he's so stupid for not believing in a God. It goes on and talks about his wickedness. So he's actually probably more like the wicked of Psalm 73 who say, does God know? Does God see? Um, it, it seems to be more, more about a denial that there's there, that there will be a reckoning than there is even a God. To say in your heart, there is no God means to live as, as what our uh, friend Chris Gertz calls a, as a practical atheist. I think he got that from somewhere else, but he's the one who introduced me to that. that right. is, there, is there any connection here to, uh, Ezekiel twenty five seventeen? No, don't answer that. Don't answer that. Keep rolling. <laughs> um, that seems to have just been generally true um, about the ancient Near East. I can't find any atheists there. Not that there weren't any, but you know that doesn't seem to have been a big, a big thing. Um, you shift over to Greece, and you'll find some pre-Socratic philosophers, um, you know, positing various kinds of uh, material origins for the universe. 
um, which has some relationship later on to these five proofs, but their universes have gods in them. They just, you know, they just don't get things started. Um, Plato, again, not so much interested in demonstrating that gods exist as in trying to argue for um, an, an ultimate God uh, in whom goodness and truth and beauty reside. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not whether a God, but which God. Um, the first thing that points in the direction we're headed is, that I know of, is Book 12 of Aristotle's Metaphysics. Uh, the unmoved mover, um, so first reasoning from the notion of there is motion, something has to move first, and that thing can't have been moved. Uh, and then also the notion of causation. Um, contingent things are caused by other things, but you can't have an endless procession of causes. Therefore, there must be a first cause, which was itself uncaused. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, Romans 1 has uh, a kind of embedded cosmological argument, at least assuming that such a thing can be made, um, saying that God's invisible qualities, this is uh, Romans one twenty, uh, from the create since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Um, it seems to assume that something like a cosmological argument could be made. Um, Anselm skipping lots and lots of years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Anselm presents his ontological argument for the existence of God. Um, you know, there must be, you know, we can imagine an, an ultimate thing, and that ultimate thing wouldn't be ultimate if it wasn't real. Therefore, God. Um, which, if you read the first chapter of Anselm's Proslogion, I don't know that we should necessarily take his ontological argument as something that was meant to be a purely rational exercise. Right. It's a devotional exercise. Exactly. Um, so I think. Sometimes I think the the ontological argument has been uh, beat up a little more than it really deserved. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, Do people still use, I should say, the variation of the uh, ontological argument? I think uh, I can never pronounce this cat's name, but Alvin Plantinga, I think, uses Plantinga. a yeah. a uh, even even harder to understand variation on the <laughs> ontological argument. Yeah, that's well, you know, that's how he rolls, man. Um, there, there is a name more difficult to pronounce, which you cannot imagine. It is Alvin Plantinga. <laughs> therefore, no, I. Therefore, he exists. <laughs> I think so. Um, skipping, skipping, skipping. Averroes, um, Ibn Rushd, uh, mm-hmm. one of the uh, is one of the uh, Arabic philosophers who uh, got hold of Aristotle. And then, and then proliferated it. Uh, in, in particular, uh, what's called the Kalam argument uh, for the existence of God, which uh, has mostly to, is is the first cause argument. Um, you can't have an endless procession of causes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, from Averroes, uh, Bonaventure picks up picks up the, that Aristotelian bent, and then Thomas Aquinas from there. So here we are. Uh, and I wouldn't add any particular text, uh, but rather just talk about a general trend there, namely yeah. that there is a sense among Muslim and Christian thinkers uh, that the existence of God, at least, is something that is subject to a rational explanation, a reasoned explanation. And my hunch is that uh, this wasn't just sort of something that they posited, you know, while they were, you know, sitting around the campfire, but rather because they had come into some kind of contact with some kind of version of Plato's Euthyphro or Aristotle's metaphysics and said, hey, these Greeks don't seem to know who the heck Moses is, and yet they seem to arrive at something like monotheism. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things where, you know, people – I think get bent out of shape when the medieval say that, you know, the existence and the unity of God are, uh, you know, susceptible or available to human reason. Uh, mm-hmm. That's an empirical claim as much as it is a speculative claim. 
as I understand it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can. It, it's easy to imagine um, a, a church father or a medieval theologian having Romans one, finding Aristotle and saying, "See, some of them did see, some of them mm-hmm. did." Absolutely, get, get absolutely. There. <laughs> Very good. Well, Michael, I'd like to get a, a quick summary of the five proofs and uh i've learned my lesson about asking david to do things quickly so i'm going to ask you uh give us a lightning round summary of the five proofs give us a bare minimum explanation of the logical syllogism inherent in each of the five if you could okay so there's really only three proofs as far as i can tell because the first three are (laughs) variations on the same argument um and by the way listeners real quick there will be a link to the five proofs on the Facebook page as well as hopefully in the show notes. Yeah. So, um, the, the, the first three are variations on the same argument, which is Aristotle's cosmological argument. So the first way Aquinas puts it, Thomas puts it, I know we're not supposed to call him Aquinas. It's not his last name. It's like Da Vinci, but I feel really weird calling this guy Thomas, like we're buddies. (laughs) Um, so the, the way Aquinas puts it is, is the argument from motion. So, uh, there are things in the world that are in motion. Everything that is in motion had to be set in, in motion by something previous this can't go on indefinitely, and so uh, God is the first mover who put everything into motion. Mm-hmm. Uh, second, the the argument from the nature of the efficient cause: uh, everything that exists had to, every effect had to have had a cause. Uh, again, that can't continue indefinitely. So God is the first causer. Mm-hmm. The third is the argument from possibility and necessity. Or uh, as as Aristotle might have called it, accident and necessity. Everything mm-hmm. everything that exists is accidental, not in the sense of it just kind of happened or somebody Oops. fell down the stairs to make it happen, <laughs> but in the sense that it didn't have to happen. Um, mm-hmm. That that we are all contingent, to use the good Greek um, tragedy word. So, uh, so so everything is everything is accidental or contingent. But again, that chain can't go back forever. There must be something necessary. God is that initial necessary being. Those are all variations on on Aristotle. Mm-hmm. The fourth one is, I think, the the strangest argument, which is the argument from gradation, as he puts it. Um, so there are things that are better, and there are things that are worse. There are things that are more true and less true, more noble and less noble. Um, because of that gradation, there must be an absolute to which they refer. And mm-hmm. and hence God is the absolute of goodness, truth, nobility, all the other good qualities. Right. I think of this one as the Plato's Republic. Argument. Yeah. For someone who yeah. loves Aristotle so much, it's 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 a little strange to see him doing Plato. But I mean, as we all know, Plato and Aristotle aren't as far off as as we sometimes treat them as being. Well, actually, I read in one book that I mean they're part of one unity called Greco-Roman thought. Yeah, it's them and, and Lucretius and. Yeah, and, you know, William of Ockham. Yeah, all those cats <laughs> hanging out together. Anyway, boy, that's an old fight that I just kicked up. <laughs> the, 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 fifth, uh, the fifth argument is um, that the world is governed in a way that makes sense. So there are, there are beings without intelligence that nevertheless seem to act for a purpose. Um, thus, somebody must be somebody with intelligence must be controlling them. This is a variation on what's called the teleological argument, which would become much more popular in uh, in the 18th century with William Paley, and uh, is mm-hmm. at least sometimes the the basis of the intelligent design movement today. So, um, those are the five. Uh, they are not all the cosmological argument, but I I, I would say the cosmological argument definitely dominates. Mm-hmm. Did mm-hmm. I get that right? Yeah, sounds good. I mean, one of the things that, again, I mean, strikes us as a little bit foreign uh, is that idea that, you know, there cannot be an infinite regress, that, you know, every cause uh, has to have a, a prior cause to it, and it can't go back infinitely. Uh, you know, that's one of those things that uh, might strike people as, well, you know, why stop there? Why not posit a cause for God as well? Right, and it's the, like the definition of special pleading. Well, yeah, yeah, and I mean the sense that I get, uh, and you know, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know what Thomas is doing here. I'm going to call him Thomas, even though Michael doesn't want to. Uh, <laughs> is saying that you know, if indeed you have a being uh, who is susceptible to another causal argument, 
then the being prior to that one is the one who's actually God and the one before it isn't God. Right. Uh, and again, I mean, you know, he's not operating mainly in the framework of Genesis 1, biblical revelation here, but again, trying to work this out rationally that, you know, um, ultimately the uh, the chain can't be infinite, at least as we conceive it. I mean, am, am I getting that basically right, do you guys think? Well, basically right, um, though I would say... I mean, yes, yes, the ra- it's 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 meant to be constructed as rational argument, but mm-hmm. he does still have a text, right? This is still in his his summa form. He has his two objections, and then mm-hmm. he has uh, his sid contra, and his sid contra is Exodus three fourteen. Uh, it is said in the person of God, "I am who I am," mm-hmm. and given the. Uh, I don't know. Given the, given the tradition of of commentary and you know theologizing that was done out of that verse, mm-hmm. um, I feel that Thomas would probably have had have felt a perfectly perf- perfectly fine saying ultimate things about God's existence that mm-hmm. that matched with the kinds of ontological statements he was getting out of what he saw as the best philosophy. Okay. Uh, not not exactly a biblical argument, but I don't think he would have seen it as uh, as saying more than Scripture would say. Right, right. And, I mean, you know, one of the, again, one of the uh, core convictions here, I mean, again, it strikes me as a philosophical conviction first that also, I mean, walks step, you know, side by side with theological convictions is mm-hmm. that existence has to arise from existence. There is not a sense that uh, nothing can cause anything. Mm-hmm. There's something <laughs> well, in the sound of music like that. Yeah, I know, I know. And, I, and every time I try to talk about this, I, I realize just how weird words sound. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, well, David, I want to take it forward to the place where probably a lot of us encountered them, namely in the history of these proofs, you know, that, that seem like, you know, geometric proofs within a system that we call theology, the way that Thomas does them. But a lot of times when we encounter them, we encounter them more like sort of proofs of innocence or guilt in a criminal court. In other words, you know, they are part of a dispute rather than they're part of a geometric inquiry. Um, Mm -hmm. it strikes me that that is an alien task for these things, at least in the work of Thomas. And yet, by the time we get to the Enlightenment, folks are acquiring some fame, honestly, for debunking them precisely as sort of court of law proofs. Mm -hmm. Is there some sort of dishonesty inherent in that kind of debunking, or are David Hume and Immanuel Kant and others responding to something that had actually changed in the way people use these proofs? Um, my guess is that they are responding to, to, uh, to a change in the proofs. Uh, you know, again, I, I don't know that Thomas was, was, you know, I I don't, I don't know that he loaded up his, his little, you know, apologetics revolver with his five (laughs) proofs, you know, and then you know, waded into the fray with all the atheists of his day, right? I, mm-hmm. you know, you know, I, I imagine atheists were as as much hypothetical to Thomas Aquinas as were Jove worshippers. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't necessarily people that he was. You know, he wasn't breaking a lance with them every day. You know, um, but uh, yeah, by the time you're by the time you're getting to Hume, by the time you're getting to Kant, there was a sea change, right? You are encountering people who, who will who will con, you know seriously consider the notion: what if there isn't a God? And so, arguments for God's existence, yeah, they, they were you know there was a fight on. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if you ever wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to talk very long, Nathan, you've done a great job because you threw Hume <laughs> at me. Sorry um, about that. So I'm just going to. Say a couple things about them, and then lateral. Um, okay. Uh, Hume 
mainly jacks with these arguments just by disputing our 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 whole ability to make any kinds of arguments on the basis of, of causation at all. Mm-hmm. All right, which uh, pretty effectively kneecaps <laughs> the five ways. Right, if we're using uh, them for that purpose. If you're using them for that purpose, yes. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're if you're using them for that purpose, Hume Hume uh, Hume has has uh, thrown a thrown a wrench in the in the works, um, and. Kant does something uh, doesn't doesn't exactly approach them uh, from the angle of causation so much as from the angle of whether or not we can even um, speak of the things that we imagine as being ultimate as being real things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he has a he has a role in his uh, in his philosophy for um, an ideal. Um, a, a a rationally conceivable ultimate, but he doesn't see existence as something that we could assign to those to those ideas. He, um, you know, existence is not a predicate. Is the sentence I kept encountering? Mm-hmm. So, although that that's know. much more of a takedown of the ontological argument, don't you think? Well, that's true, but if once you've once you've taken that down. The idea that well, I can imagine a first cause, or I can imagine an unmoved mover, or I can imagine an ultimately good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, whatever whatever that ideal ultimate is that you imagine. When Kant says, "Well, just because you can think of it doesn't mean it's real," um, well, there too. It's <laughs> it's like, hey man. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're trying to build stuff, and, and he he just keeps taking your Legos. Yeah, yeah, and I mean Kant definitely. I mean keeps going back to the ontological argument as sort of a root assumption mm-hmm. that he sees as behind all five of Thomas's proofs. Mm-hmm. Which is funny because Thomas explicitly rejects the ontological argument in the section before the five proofs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He rejects the ontological argument, but in some ways he seems to assume what that argument intended to prove. Um, that there, that there is an, that there is an ultimate real thing. Right. right. About which, about which we can say intelligible statements. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is the part Kant really has a problem with. Right. Cause at the so, end of, at the end of the prolegomena and probably at the end of the critique of pure reason, although goodness knows I have not read the critique of pure reason. Um, he 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 affirms the idea that there's a God, but he says mm-hmm. all we know about God is his effects in our own life. It's a it's a very like pietist version mm-hmm. of of uh, theism. Certainly, right. certainly God's not going to reside at the end of one of these logical proofs. God exists off in the right. the noumena. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess and if there- I if I was going to say it from Kant's view, well from 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 uh, from Thomas's view. He's going to take where Anselm's argument concludes as something that he assumes, but not on the ground of Anselm's argument. Right. Whereas from Kant's perspective, you've got to have an argument. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's the one that's there for the premise that Thomas presumes. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Michael, is there anything you'd add to that Enlightenment account? No, I think David pretty well covered it. Well, one text from Hume, and I can't remember if it's in the uh, on the nature of human understanding or another one of of Hume's books, but he makes what for me, I mean, is probably the most difficult critique of the argument from design, uh, namely that we only have a universe, uh, and therefore we don't have an undesigned universe to compare it to. Yeah, and I mean, I, you know, as an empiricist, of course, that's where Hume's going to go, right? You know, if you're going to say that our uh, our reality, you know, shows signs of design, he would want to say, all right, well, you know, uh, if this is a murder, show me a sign of an accidental death universe. <laughs> and, you know, Which... I mean, that, that there is a certain elegance and a certain power to that argument, I've got to concede. Yeah, but at the same time... 
it w- it wasn't an empirical argument to start with. The, oh, the, true enough. True the enough. teleological argument isn't an <laughs> empirical argument. No, I, I I mean in this in the sense that, I mean, how do you get a whole other universe? You know, it, like a control universe. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that that's I mean that's basically what Hume's that's how Hume's argument runs, right? You know, that the cosmological argument says. Uh, and again, I mean, I realize that it's not exactly Thomas's wording, but he says that the way that people are using it there in the 1750s assumes that, you know, they look at the universe and they see, you know, evidence of design as opposed to accident. And, you know, his, his fairly simple request is, all right, show me an accidental universe so I can compare the two and agree with you. Uh, <laughs> I, I, it makes sense to me. It feels like cheating to me. Yeah, I well, can't figure. I can't figure out why, but it feels like cheating. Well, all these, all these proofs or disproofs of God are cheating because it's it's finite beings attempting to talk about the infinite. I, I mean, I mean, in in some ways, I think Kant is closer to the truth than any of them because Kant at least says there's a line here beyond which you can't cross because of your finitude. No, I, I don't know if he'd put it as finitude, but. I'm going to I'm going to adapt him anyway. You're right, it sounds like cheating, but the cosmological and ontological and teleological arguments also talk are also are cheating because they they assume that we have this eternal position that we simply don't have. Maybe God could use those arguments. Well, maybe maybe we don't have. Maybe we don't have. And and let me attempt a counter argument to that, Michael, because I mean, you are making assumptions about the lack of analogy between divine existence and human existence, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there are definitely strains in not only Christian philosophy, but in other schools of philosophy as well that say that the existence of God and the existence of humanity are not univocal, uh, but they are certainly in some sort of analogical relationship so that they can speak about each other in intelligible ways. I mean, to make that ontological chasm absolute the way that Kant does is to make that subjective term that by no means is common to all of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I just, I just feel like it, it. I just, I just feel like that that chasm preserves the, the, uh, omnipotence of God. Mm. I, I, I know now I'm, now I'm turning back into a Calvinist. Well, no, I was thinking a Bardian more than well, a Calvinist. Bart, Bart, Bart was a Calvinist, man. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, true enough, true enough. So, listeners, if you were at all surprised that uh, Michael turned Bardian on us here, do write in and tell us about your surprise. <laughs> tell tell us how hard the floor hurt you when you fell out of your chair. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was I, I was just going to say I feel like we've already segued into the next question. Well, yeah, we kind of have. So. <laughs> Thank you, David, for throwing up the signal flag for the segue. Uh, So, Michael, since we're already going into BART, uh, talk a little existentialism for us. Did Kierkegaard or other early Christian existentialists engage with these five proofs at all? And if so, what did they say? And if not, what do you imagine they might have said? I don't find anywhere in Kierkegaard where he directly talks about Thomas Aquinas and the proofs, but it is not hard to imagine what he would say. He would say that if you're trying to prove the existence of God, you're, you're already doing the wrong thing. So it doesn't matter how <laughs> ingenious your proof is, you're doing the wrong thing. So his example is uh, Napoleon. He says that perhaps you could you you could prove the existence of Napoleon by the existence of this person who conquered all of Europe, but nobody does that, and it, it would be kind of silly to do that, right? Uh, Napoleon exists, and we know this because Napoleon was a person. And in the same way, God exists, and you can't prove the existence of a person, nor should you because it's impious. Mm -hmm. And the other Christian existentialists, I suspect, are going to agree with him. I know that Gabriel Marcel, I looked him up about Aquinas because um, Marcel was a Catholic. And, you know, if you're a Catholic, you have to at least like Aquinas a little bit. (laughs) Um, but he says, he says very much the same thing that, that the problem with proofs of God's existence is that it turns God into an object instead of a subject. 
And mm. and for for Christian existentialists, God is always a subject first and foremost. And so um, trying to prove him is not just futile, it's disrespectful. Mm-hmm. Then, then, I mean, Bart, as we've already talked about, kind of inherits that whole Kantian division and, uh, and, and puts God on the other side of this chasm and, and calls him wholly other. And he says, there's no, there's no path of human reason, not even, a, not even a via negativa. He says that is going to lead us to God. God has to come and reveal himself to us. So we need, we need revelation, but revelation's not proof. We've known that at least since Thomas Paine. Revelation mm-hmm. only counts as proof to the person who first received it. After that, it's hearsay. So what all these people have in common is God is a person who must be approached in faith, not not through reason. And I don't want to make it sound like they're all just fideists. Um, some of them are and to varying degrees. But, I mean, this is not saying there's no place for rationality, but it is saying that rationality is not going to get you to God. So, uh, yeah, again, not not a direct refutation of these five proofs in particular, mm-hmm. but a dismissal of the entire project of proving God's existence. Right, right. Well, and I'm, I, I didn't want to frame the question as since they didn't talk about it, what would they say? Because I didn't know if they did or not. So <laughs> and, I, and I, I haven't read I haven't read every word of any of them, so I can't right, right. I can't promise you they don't talk about it. But I can so, tell you, listeners, if you can point us to passages, please do email in. We'd be glad to find out about them. Mm. Yeah, and, and and Michael, I mean, hearing you describe that again, I mean, it's one of those things where, on their own terms, I, I think that those arguments have a certain rhetorical appeal to them to be sure i wonder though i mean are we giving up too much when we define being as having that absolute chasm in the midst of it uh you know i mean there's also something appealing i guess i would say about a notion that you know we would inherit from thomas that you know there is an analogy between divine being and human being and i wouldn't want to go as far as you know dun scotus or william of ockham and say that being is simply, you know, the category of categories and God as well as creation are subject to it. I wouldn't mm-hmm. want to go that far, but I, I have a, I guess in my gut, if you will, I still want to hold on to that notion of an anal- analogy of being. I'm not going to do the Latin there. I'll and, let David do that. And what I, what, I, <laughs> what I would suggest is you're probably not going to get past your gut notion that there's an analogy of being. Um, okay, but, I, I mean that. In, I mean that in two ways. Number one, yeah. you'll probably never get rid of it. Um, uh-huh. uh, we all, I think, kind of feel that way. That, that mm-hmm. there's there's some connection between our world and God's world. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I don't think you'll get past it in the sense that I don't think such an analogy would be sensible to us on this side of that divide. And I know, I know, you're saying there's no divide, or well, no, I'm at least saying you're it... saying at least you're saying there's a bridge over it. Well, no, no, no. I'm saying there is an analogy, right? I mean, I want to go back to Thomas and say, you know, no, divine being and human being are not the same thing by any means, but there's an analogical relationship so that we can at least speak of it intelligibly. That's not to say that they're identical. That'd be to go the route of Duns Scotus, right? Yeah. But my hunch is that, I mean, the, the absolute chasm is just as much a gut impulse as the analogy. Well, yeah, and all, ph- all philosophies are eventually circular. Right, because at a certain right. at a certain point, you're just going to have to say, uh, "This is all based on a on a vague feeling I have." As, as all philosophies well, <laughs> eventually are, if you dig, well, if you but, dig deep but, enough. Well, uh, let let me go sort of quasi pragmatist with it. But there is the question of what can the philosophy do intellectually? What kind of work can it do that its rivals cannot do? And again, I mean, it, it seems to me that you know. Talking about uh, goodness as having some sort of intellectual content to it, and you all read this in my dissertation, so I mean, I'm just reciting chapter one here. But it seems like saying that goodness actually has some sort of intellectual content beyond simply an arbitrary and unknown will relies on some kind of analogy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and, and I, I mean, I could probably follow you there. Where I couldn't follow you is that we can we can pick up the end of that yarn and and walk it all the way back to god cuz 
I, I guess I wouldn't say there's no analogy. What I'd say is there's no proof. Okay. And, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and there's a, there's a hermeneutic of analogy, mm-hmm. right? Any, any analogy you see is going to be able to be interpreted multiple ways. And at a certain point, you just have to pick one. Would it be, uh, would it be useful at this point to make a distinction between something being rationally coherent and something being, you know, utterly demon- demonstrated? Yes. Cause I think go, there go is, ahead do so. <laughs> I mean, there, there is a kind of strength in saying that something makes, makes sense but then be able to still say, you know, the fact that this makes sense doesn't mean, you know, that, 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 that is not on its, on its own going to, going to demonstrate that the, that it is a true statement, but at least that it's a, not a nonsensical statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, <laughs> right. I, I would agree with that. You know, like I said, all philosophies are circular, mm-hmm. but, but if, if that's the case, then the, the, the judgment we should make about them is whether they're internally coherent. At least it's right. a well, judgment we should make about them. And, and I would want to take it a step beyond that. And I mean, I realize I'm pulling in some Thomas Kuhn and some Gadamer in here. But what I would want to ask is, what kind of work can it do intellectually once you've got the philosophical axioms in place? You know, does it do better work? And I realize that, you know, the criteria of better are also rolled up into the axiom you start with. So listeners, if you want to write in and <laughs> accuse me of ignoring that, go ahead, because I just didn't ignore it. Uh, but I mean, it strikes me that, you know, for instance, you know, in Thomas Kuhn's notion of, you know, the, the paradigm shift to, you know, invoke a phrase that's been abused left and right. Uh, you know, I mean, there still is a notion that, you know, it accounts for more phenomena in more intellectually coherent ways than its predecessor or than Mm -hmm. its rival. I mean, let's, let's not be teleological about it. Uh, you know. So, I mean, I, I guess, you know, I, I don't know if that's a, a, a move of bad faith to import uh, philosophy of science into, you know, philosophical theology, but it strikes me as something that we, a question we should be asking. And that's, I guess that's why I want to bring Gadamer in here, because he seems to be doing the same thing with what he calls the human sciences. Well, if you're going to import philosophy of science into this whole discussion i like that way better than hume's let's get another universe and put the two in the laboratory and compare <laughs> does that make sense and, and yeah it, it makes sense it makes sense <laughs> I, i'm just laughing because i mean i it's funny i and again i do i contradict myself very well that i contradict myself but uh <laughs> you know i <laughs> I, I, kind, multitudes. I, I kind of like David Hume's uh, rebuttal of the cosmological argument, but I still <laughs> think that, you know, some kind of Thomas Kuhn, you know, uh, Gadamer sort of approach to it might be handy. Mm-hmm. I'm also, you know, sometimes incoherent, so I'll grant that possibility. <laughs> <laughs> well, not, not so much circular logic as hexagonal logic. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Well, David, you've been our defender of classical apologetics in the past. Uh, we did an apologetics episode very early in the in the run of this podcast. So very. tell me this. <laughs> how well have the five proofs aged as part of that enterprise of classical apologetics? And in what ways has classical apologetics moved past them? Oy. Um, the, aging, the aging of the five proofs um, has – they haven't gone away. Right, they're not. They're not. They're not utterly gone. Um, however, they they've had to be um, finessed, retooled, and so forth. Uh, they've had to deal with uh, epistemological sea changes. They've had to deal with, um, well, the 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 more scientific approach to knowing that that uh, emerges in Hume and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, they've had to take those things into account, but, but they're, s- they're still around. Um, some people to point to, uh, William Lane Craig, mm-hmm. uh, Christian philosopher still, um, you know, the, the, the cosmological argument is, is still his thing. All right. 
Um, and he, he just keeps, you know, tweaking it and retooling it. Um, Oh, another, another Christian apologist, uh, in evangelical circles, Norman Geisler. Um, Stormin' Norman. Yeah. He's, <laughs> uh, he's, he's basically the Protestant Thomist. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a lo- good description. He, he loves him the five ways. Um, now he will say, uh, the, the way that, uh, the way that he will express it now is not that the five ways are, are unbreakable. <laughs> unbreakable ultimate, you know, arguments on which you can build a foundation for a theology. Uh, what he'll say is that the five ways, um, expressed properly, understood rightly, uh, can be useful for demonstrating the rational coherence of a theistic worldview. Mm -hmm. And I use the W word. I'm sorry. Oh, that's all right. Um, That's all right. Well, no, what you just described, David, I like that a great deal because one of the things that drives me nuts about, and and I'll just go ahead and name the group, I mean, that self-identified progressive Christians, mm -hmm. the way that they treat medieval theology, they find the one phrase or the one term that is most distasteful to the modern palate, and then Mm -hmm. they'll say that that term is really the heart of that medieval philosophy, therefore we have nothing to gain from it. Well, that's Mm -hmm. silly. Well, yeah, and I and well, like I said, that's why it drives me nuts. But you know, <laughs> I, I like the distinction that you know you decided in Geisler, where you know we have to retool and refine these things. You know, they are not the content of Revelation; they right. are second order speculations on Revelation that mm-hmm. we use for the sake of thinking Christianly. You know, they're right. they're not uh, fixed points, if you will. Well, and and two, I think there's good theological reasons why Christians over the centuries have kept have kept these, uh, especially the cosmological ones, uh, the cosmological argument, uh, the one through three, mm-hmm. in its variations, and number five, the the teleological argument, is that the opening gambit of our revelation is God making the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't call it a gambit. I just call it an opening. <laughs> well, I consider. Well, I, I would call it. I, I would call it a gambit because I see it as a. a it's 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 a competitive move. It's audacious. Okay. Yeah, I mean, in in the context in which Genesis falls in the ancient Near East, it's mm-hmm. it's a gauntlet thrown down. Okay. <laughs> um, not in the beginning. There was a primordial swamp from which your God sprang. Right. Uh, right. Anyway, so all, all, all that to say this, um, yeah, I, th- I think they keep getting retooled because they're seen as useful ways of getting at something that, uh, or, or uh, talking about in a kind of logical way, uh, things that Revelation seems to point to. Um, mm-hmm. Well, no, not seems. I'll say points to. <laughs> um, another guy, uh, Peter Kreeft. Uh, he's a he's a Roman Catholic apologist. Um, mm-hmm. Also loves him some Thomas. Um, he he also treats the five ways as uh, ways of rational coherence, um, not necessarily as uh, foundations, but uh, but as uh, about making a ma- making Christianity. Uh, um, not an irrational uh, notion, mm-hmm. though uh, he does say that the five ways are complex, usually understood badly, and therefore are probably not the best arguments to start with. So he's not he's not going to be like he's not going to incorporate them into his you know uh, you know cold cold meeting evangelism tech tactics. Well, sure, sure. I mean, and again, I mean, I, that's something that I've tried to emphasize. And I think both of you yeah. have as well that, you know, the point of these five geometric proofs is the, is what I like to call them is not to say these are reasons why you should not be an atheist, but you know, these are f- five means by which you can enter into a conversation between revelation on one hand and then speculative reason on the other and have those worlds talk to each other a little bit. 
Yeah, and yeah. in, in a in a Kierkegaardian sense, I would say that the arguments make sense once you've accepted the final premises. <laughs> you know, which mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I know is the definition of begging the question, but but I just, well, it's also faith seeking understanding, is it not? <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. So, and you know, again, all philosophical arguments beg the question at some point. So mm-hmm. I I I don't think these are without value. I just don't think they're proofs. Well, well, depending it, on what a proof is, right? I mean, you know, a geometric proof is not to convince you who you didn't used to believe that circles existed, that circles exist. Yeah. You know, it's it's a rational account for the nature of a circle. Uh, given by someone who already knows what circles are. Yeah. <laughs> to someone who already knows what circles are. Yes. <laughs> um, and then anyway, you, sorry, David, I keep cutting you yeah. off. <laughs> well, I, I just want to make the last, you know, just kind of hat tip back at Michael. Uh, he already, uh, you already mentioned uh, the intelligent design movement, Phil Johnson, guys like that. Um, and they're basically taking number five, the teleology argument, and just working that out to the nth degree, retooling, retooling, retooling it. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're still around, but not in Thomas's syllogistic form necessarily. Mm-hmm. Michael, is there anything you'd add to that catalog? No. All right. Well, I, I want to go literary with you then because we have uh, cruelly forced you to talk about medieval theology for 45 minutes now. <laughs> uh, so I want you to talk about an American novel for us. And it's a novel that takes on the notion of proof of God and moves it in some interesting and in my mind, disturbing ways. And it's, it's, it's John Updike's Rogers version. So tell us a little bit about the quest for proof of divine existence in that novel. And be sure to tell us about the horrifying academic party scene. I'm, uh, I'm holding the book in my hand right now. And I've always found it difficult to be disturbed by this book. I have the original first edition. And on the back cover, there's a picture of Updike standing in a doorway in what looks to be his house, above which is a bust of his head on which he has put sunglasses. <laughs> so if you're disturbed by Roger's version, buy the first edition, and any time you get disturbed, turn back and look at Updike's uh, bust wearing sunglasses. All right, so it's kind of like you know, look, uh, listening to the audio recordings of uh, Cornelius Van Til's theology classes. Right. <laughs> you, just, you just can't think of him as Darth Vader after that. Uh, Roger's version is in a trilogy of novels by Updike that rewrite the Scarlet Letter. Um, from a different perspective each time. So Roger's version, as you might expect, comes from, well, you know, supposedly you would think it comes from Roger Chillingworth, but it really kind of muddles the ground a bit because the idea of the, um, the, the, the love, central love triangle in, a Scarlet, in the Scarlet Letter is a man of faith, a man of science, and the woman who both of them desire, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Roger, in Roger's version, is a, theology professor uh but not really a man of faith he's a fideist who barely seems to have any faith at all and the central Mm -hmm. conflict in the book is between him and dale kohler who is a computer science student who wants to prove the existence of god using a computer and and you know the science is both above my head and 30 years old (laughs) <laughs> um, but it, it, it seems to be a variation on the cosmological argument using the Big Bang Theory and computers. Mm-hmm. I would have to show it to a scientist to see if it actually ever made any sense, but I, I doubt it holds up much at all anymore. So the, the novel is built on this conflict, and then um, – well, I'll get, I'll get to that part in a second. But they, they end up the, – the, the climax of the novel is at this, at this uh, dinner party, as you say, or cocktail party. Mm-hmm. And uh, Roger introduces Dale to his neighbor, Myron Friedman, who is a astrophysicist, I believe. And Dale talks to him about his project, which Myron dismantles, like just utterly tears to pieces. Dale probably gets ten words in. Everything he says, Myron immediately has a response to, and it just makes him look like an idiot. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, the science is way over my head and 30 years out of date, um, but at least in the context of the novel – uh, this feels pretty impenetrable. And, and um, afterwards, Roger tells him not to listen to the old bluffer. But the damage is done, right? The the project has been destroyed. And this is supposed to, Roger hopes, demonstrate that uh, 
the existence of God is a matter of faith. He says he's been a fideus since he was 15 years old. And clearly mm-hmm. that that's the direction he wants to go. He's a, he's a Bardian um, in the novel. And the problem is faith itself becomes complicated because the central act of faith in the novel is not faith in God, but Roger's faith and imagination that uh, Dale is having an affair with his wife. And he, mm-hmm. he, there's these lengthy passages where he imagines this affair and talks about it in the third person, uh, almost as if there were a third person narrator to the novel. So the proofs of God have been destroyed. Faith has been uh, undermined isn't the right word, but, but uh, well, maybe it is. <laughs> yeah. Destabil- I mean, I, destabilized. I yeah. I can't think of a better word. And, and so you're right. The novel, the novel kind of hovers in nihilism at the end. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, you know, like Michael said, I mean, he is less disturbed by this than I, than I am. But I mean, I remember reading this scene uh, as, you know, a seminary student. And, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking of, you know, the high schoolers and, you know, gra- and undergrads that, you know, I was in contact with at the time and their confidence that, you know, they could rationally demonstrate the existence of God and thinking, okay, give them a few years, they'll mellow out. But Roger doesn't allow that. I mean, he destroys this kid or, I mean, feeds him to the destroyer in one scene. Yeah. And I mean, he's I'm he's just, as cruel as Roger Chillingsworth is to. Yeah. And I mean, my mind in that whole scene is just screaming, leave that kid alone. God. <laughs> no, we say kid, but Dale is 28. Yeah, but he's got the mind of an undergrad. Yeah. Yeah. He's, 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 <laughs> You know, we've all had students like this. He's very strident. He's very excited about his work. It's, mm-hmm. it's clear to the reader from the first page that this project is doomed. Yeah. But Dale's not an unlikable person, exactly. Well, uh, I mean, it depends no if more... the scenes in Roger's imagination or not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and David, I you know, I didn't ask you before we started the show prep, but I mean, have you read Roger's version at any point? <laughs> no. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, like I said, I mean, it just struck me as nope. a good place to, you know, uh, free Michael from the manacles of medieval theology and let him talk about a novel for a bit. So David only reads 20th century novels if they feature a plucky kid detective. Exactly. Or a hobbit. Or a hobbit. Though <laughs> so those are not, you know, I mean, you might see a connection with them. Plucky and little. <laughs> all right. Well, anyway, as we head towards the exit, uh, I'd like to turn towards Christian education uh, because that's where all three of us live right now, and that's what we spend a fair bit of time thinking about. Let's go around the horn here at the end, starting with David, and say what place, if any, something like the five proofs might have in a Christian liberal arts education. David, take it away. Might might have? Yeah. M- must have. It's, okay. I mean, it's history, dude. It's it's a vital move in, you know, Christian theological and philosophical, you know, development. Um, if you don't have the five ways as part of your Christian humanist education, a whole lot of what happens, you know, theologically and philosophically that follows isn't coherent because people just keep being in conversation with Thomas. Um, I mean, just for that fact alone, it, it, it goes in, it, it goes in. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it's also useful, um, to have the conversation about what, what do we mean by proof? Um, Yeah. What does it mean to, to, to prove God? What, you know, what do these things accomplish and under what conditions and for whom, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, the, the, these are all vital conversations for, you know, for a Christian mind that's, you know, developing in conversation with this, you know, this tradition that we've inherited. Um, you know, I, 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 I would not shelve them at all. Uh, they've, they've absolutely got to be there. I agree with that. Um, all right, we'll I, take it away. I, I don't I don't think the history of philosophy post Aquinas is going to be intelligible if you haven't. You don't have some familiarity with those proofs. Um, I was teaching meditations on first philosophy with my honor students uh, on on Tuesday, and mm-hmm. 
his entire project after the second meditation depends on the ontological proof for God's existence. Ah, okay. You know, mm. so if, if, if modern philosophy begins with Descartes and it does, um, you, you gotta, you gotta have these proofs in there somewhere. That being said, I think most students, especially at a, especially most non-religious students are going to reject them on some level. And I don't think most students are going to say these are airtight proofs, but it sounds like modern apologetics doesn't say that either, which is good. No. Um, to this, I would add for Christian students, the devotional value that we've talked about uh, for a while now. I mean, these are all, a lot of these proofs begin as devotional exercises and mm-hmm. still have value in that sense. What I don't think they can bring people to faith, but I think that once you've come to faith, they can start filling you in on the peculiarly theological logic of the, of the Christian life. And, mm-hmm. and in that sense, they do, they do have real value beyond just historical value. Mm-hmm. But I don't think showing uh, them to atheists is going to do anything except make people laugh at us. Yeah, don't mm-hmm. do that. <laughs> Just don't. <laughs> well, it, you know, I had – I was reading uh, – just, just kind of poking around mm-hmm. the internet. And and it, there was this uh, – talking about this this philosophy of science guy who's – you know, he's like, yeah, taking down the cosmological argument – by making this argument that something can come from nothing because of quantumness, mm-hmm. but I don't think his nothing and Aristotle and Thomas's nothing are the same nothing. Mm-hmm. You keep <laughs> using that word. Yeah, well, I do not think it means what you think it means. Yeah, it's it's it seemed it seemed to be. Yeah, it, it it seemed as if they weren't even having the conversation. And mm-hmm. well, you know, obviously Thomas and Aristotle are, you know, they are long long dead, but you you know, I just reading this guy this this account of of this particular philosophy of science guy's takedown of the cosmological argument left me feeling like he'd walked away feeling like he'd won but not really having understood what they were trying to say. Mm-hmm. You know, because he had a notion of nothing that was nothing like as Thomas's. far as I'm concerned, <laughs> not nothing. <laughs> plus, plus, because quantum <laughs> physics is the most tedious answer ever. Well, it, it's used it's used to explain everything on on all sides too. Like like mystics now say because quantum physics. Yeah. Mm. We, we, Although this we, guy's a philosophy of science person, which I guess means he actually understands quantum physics, unlike the rest of us. Well, I mean, I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm certainly not equipped to, you know, to wade into the fray and dispute his quantum physics. If, I, I, if I, only there were a show on this network that was hosted in part by an actual quantum physicist. That would be great. Do you know where our listeners might be able to find a show like that, Michael? Yes, I think they're recording very soon the Book of Nature podcast. <laughs> Featuring meteorologist Dan Dawson, psychologist Charles Hackney, and actual factual quantum physicist Todd Pedler. And don't worry, listeners, we won't charge you for the extra cheese there. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, if I, well, if I could wrap up, I mean, talking about the place of the proofs in a Christian education, I mean, I think certainly the historical argument holds. I think certainly holding up Thomas as a sort of model, as a devotional philosopher holds. The, about the only thing that I would add to those two, which are you know better than what I had, uh, is that looking at how Thomas actually puts those pieces together uh, mm. provides us some kind of exemplar. And I won't say what kind of exemplar, because I don't want to determine that at the outset, but it provides us something against which to hold our own practices, right? Mm-hmm. So... You know, as we struggle, and it's always a struggle, to bring together the best learning that we've got with the content of Christian revelation and the life of following Jesus, we can use as many models as we can get. I mean, I would put Soren Kierkegaard in that category just as readily as I'd put Thomas Aquinas in there, precisely because they might differ from us in ways that illuminate what we do and actually encourage us to do what we do rather than what they do. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm perfectly fine with that. I'm great with that. But I think that that awareness and that, you know, um, and Michael, I mean, when we read Gadamer together back in the summer of 13, I mean, I, I feel like I've just internalized his categories and now I'm his parrot 
But I mean, when we, <laughs> when we start to blend those horizons, I think that better thoughts are possible than before we blend those horizons together. So uh, that's all the blending horizons that we're going to do today. I want to thank Michael <laughs> Farmer and David Grubbs this morning. Uh, David, you've got the steering wheel next week. Do you know where we're driving? Uh, to a place Michael doesn't want to go. Two weeks in a row. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about allegory. Woohoo! <laughs> uh, <laughs> listeners, you will be able to find uh, Michael's essay against allegory at ChristianHumanist.org. You can also find other blog posts there, as well as show notes for all of our shows, the Christian Humanist Podcast, as well as Christian Humanist Profiles and the Christian Feminist Podcast. You can also email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can go over to iTunes, give us a rating, and write us a review. Remember, anytime you do that, you're going to bring our show into contact with new potential listeners, which is always good. Uh, you can also, is there another also? Oh, yeah, you can also find us on Stitcher if you use that app. All sorts of ways to get that Christian humanist goodness out there. Again, tell your friends about us. Uh, link to us in your Facebook page, on your blogs, however you want to do it. We always appreciate when more friends get invited to this conversation. So in the meantime, as we await the advent of the allegory, uh, this is Nathan Gilmore in behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. Because